0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Ladies and gentlemen, the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled
1: masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore.
0: Send these, the homeless tempest toss to me. Actually, that would be Debbie Irwin, voiceover artist whose list of voiceover clients would take the entire length of this show to recite, but include Jennifer Convertibles, now Jennifer Furniture, General Electric, the New York Blood Center, her work with e-learning and explainer videos for companies like HSBC, Barclays, and Oracle, corporate and medical narrations, sales and marketing videos, live announcing and museum audio tours, acoustic guides on-hold message and phone prompts. Debbie's featured among the top 100 most popular female voice talents. Some background. Debbie began her acting career in Chicago-based theater productions, but after she graduated from Brown University, she wanted to set her sights on the Big Apple, performing in children's theater productions and classical comedies. After several years, Debbie decided to switch career paths, working in the PR department of Manhattan's Guggenheim Museum. But while she enjoyed the challenge, she wanted more. An interest in finance prompted her to move to Wall Street, where she worked as a stockbroker at Dean Witter and Smith Barney. But at the height of her business career, she took time off to start a family. However, her creative juices began to bubble, so Debbie decided to take a voiceover class and got hooked. That was 13 years ago. She hasn't looked back since. And as I mentioned, her voice has been here, there, and everywhere. So it's time to meet the woman with a versatile voice. Debbie, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for having me here. So let me begin by asking, how does one become the voice of the Statue of Liberty? A lot of practice holding up a, <laughs> <laughs> holding up a uh, torch. A torch. <laughs> well,
1: the way that happened was, um, I, I guess because of my work in museums and uh, uh, appreciation for uh, for that whole world. I targeted Acoustiguide and Antenna Audio. Those are the two major companies that produce, you know, I would say the, the lion's share, over 90% of the audio tours that you will hear anywhere in the world, really. Um, and they're located here in, in New York City. So I contacted them. I Sent them my demos. I was told, "Thank you, no thank you." I continued to contact them. Was this them. something
0: you aspired to? You thought, "How cool would this Absolutely.
1: be?" Absolutely, I love this kind of work. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the sometimes when I'm hired to, well, in the case certainly of the Statue of Liberty, you're playing a character. Other times, I'm the narrator
0: right. of the entire tour. And I really rely on acoustic guides when I go to the museum. That's how I process things by listening, as opposed to reading and i find them so helpful. So with that as a backdrop, you said, i can i want to do this. Yes,
1: yes, and i continue to, you know, to knock, knock on, on their <laughs> door, and irony of ironies, when i contacted the again to say, you know, is is so and so there, i dropped off my demo with him and they said, oh, no, sorry, he's, you know, he's gone. He's no longer with the company. And this was the guy who told me, thank you, no, thank you, we're not interested. And then, sure enough, they called me in saying, we found your demo on so-and-so's desk. Uh, You know, please come in. We would like to audition you.
0: Even though they might have already had another voice of the Statue of Liberty?
1: Oh, I don't know if this was the first time that they were being asked to produce this. Mm -hmm. Um, But Who cares? But, you know, Mm -hmm. in this business, it's not uncommon to replace a voice and then sometimes
0: replaced. You had a rather eclectic career. How's that for understatement? Do you get bored easily, or are you someone who just loves a challenge? And has it been easy to make those career transitions? I don't think it's that I get bored
1: easily. I think it's that because I've been exposed to a lot of different things that I appreciate that there's a lot out there to experience. Um, Growing up, I lived in Italy for two years with my family. A year twice. My father had earned a Fulbright to do his research. He's a um, a scientist, an entomologist. So Rome was where my parents decided they wanted to go and brought all the kids in tow. And um, we were really integrated into that society there. I went to Italian public school, became fluent in that language. And we did a lot of traveling throughout Europe and also Mexico. So I think being exposed to all these different things, gives you an appreciation for change and ability to handle change. Change is never easy, not personal, not professional, but but I'm a big believer in the rewards that come with change and
0: challenge. So there was a drive. To get into theater.
1: Well, that was yeah, that was I think from the time I was just a, a wee tot. Um, you know, I'm I'm the third out of four kids, and I was the baby for seven years. And uh, I guess I got a lot of uh, attention. Um, you know, made people laugh an awful lot, and I guess that sort of fed a certain whatever in me. And uh, so I was doing theater from the time I was really very, very young. I was doing uh, improv. I was doing mime uh, with the guy who had uh, trained with Marcel Marceau. I remember meeting Marcel Marceau backstage at the Chicago Lyric. I was doing theater at the University of Chicago while I was in high school, mm-hmm. and then I finished high school after three years, and then went to the U of C for one year for my freshman year, and then I transferred to Brown, where I continued to do theater. With the goal of taking that well professionally? You know, I didn't major in theater, and I started to... Turned my sights a little bit to something that I thought was perhaps an easier path to take, and that was radio and television. Mm-hmm. So while I was at Brown, I worked at the network affiliates, NBC and ABC uh, network affiliates, and I worked in the news department. And I also worked as a floor director, and I was given my own women's public affairs radio show at uh, uh, WJAR. Providence, yes, I Providence. know Providence. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. Providence with. Ernie Anastas and Meredith Vieira and you know all those all those good people.
0: But that was a, a behind the camera stint for you. Yes, it, it it
1: was it was. Although one night I had after the news was over, my buddies were always in the you know my my friends were in the control mm-hmm. room. They weren't mm-hmm. the talent, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. The, those people were on a completely other level. So I got dressed up and um, you know makeup and everything, and they rolled back the teleprompter. And this was 11:30 at night, so everybody was gone. They rolled back the you know the teleprompter of the newscast, and I. I got on the set, and they recorded me so that I could have an audition tape. Uh Aha. So I took that audition tape,
0: and I... That's pretty damn brilliant, isn't it? (laughs) Is
1: is it? Yeah. (laughs) I think so. I realized I just wanted to be in front of the camera, and that was the eureka moment. Mm -hmm. That was when I realized... Hello, dummy. You know, what you really want is you want to perform. So you have to get yourself to New York and you have to pursue that dream that you have always had. And if it
0: doesn't work out, what better place to be than New York to find something else? But what was that dream to be on Broadway? To be an broad- actress. To be yes, on, Broadway. on Broadway. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes. did that dream get fulfilled?
1: Only when I bought an apartment on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it didn't. It didn't. But it, it um, I, you know, for two years, I struggled like every other 20 something doing the cattle calls or whatever kind of calls they right. were. And mm-hmm. I did some, I was, by night, I was working as a bartender at the Electric Circus, which was so much fun because I love to dance. I love disco. So it was a great environment to be in and I made good money. And by day, I struggled, you know, doing, as you mentioned in the intro, some children's theater, some classical comedy we performed in, um, in the projects and in public parks. And uh, I had a walk-on part on All My Children, which was so fast that even my mom
0: didn't recognize mm-hmm. me when she was watching the... But you had the tenacity and you just <laughs> kind of forged ahead, uh-huh. right?
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a forger, a forger <laughs> and a forager. <laughs> you know, patience and perseverance. When you have a passion, when you have a hunger that's, that's inside you... The that's fire that, that, strong, that you can't put out, huh? Right. Uh, let me just backtrack for a little bit and say that, you know, after I graduated from from Brown, I spent a year um, living in, in on the south side of Providence and I was working as a cocktail waitress in a disco trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I did not know what I was going to do. I, By day, I was on my bed staring at my ceiling, crying, crying, crying. By night, I was making money. And it took me a year, a very, very long, hard, painful year to figure out what it was that was going to be next for me. Because, you know, I have this metaphor that being in college is like going to a restaurant, right? You just open up the menu and you decide, okay, I'll have some from this this appetizer, this hors d'oeuvre. I'll have this entree. I'll have this salad. And it's, made, it's easy for you. But when you get out of college and you are on your own, there's no structure. There's no, well, mm-hmm. have this, have that. You have to figure it out for yourself. No kidding. And then it was like, well, I can't really make a move until I know what it is that that's right, that I can put my heart and soul in. So I was fairly stationary. Obviously, I didn't leave Providence. I was there and, you know, making money while I was trying to figure it out. So that was a very painful year. But again, I think, you know, when I sort of had the eureka about, oh, you know, it's not, I don't don't want the news. I don't really want TV, radio. I, I just, I want to perform. And then it was like, obviously, I have to go to New York. So then, You know, then the rest was clear until after a couple of years of doing it and feeling like, okay, I think I exorcised this passion. I I got it out of my system. I'm not going to wake up one morning when I'm 40 and married with kids and say, why didn't I ever do this? You know, I now I can't. So I was ready to move on. I was ready for structure. I was ready for a real job. I was ready for a regular paycheck. And that was when I got the job at the Guggenheim.
0: As Public Affairs Coordinator. So then you left the performing part behind you. And that was a good match for you in terms of the time and the place? It yeah, worked absolutely, absolutely. It was great. It was really, really great.
1: We were the public arm of the of the uh, the public face of of the museum, and we were the internal liaison for all the different departments, and we coordinated all the special events, and we wrote the bi monthly calendar of events, and it was it was a really interesting, um, wonderful job. But in the nonprofit world, you have to be independently
0: wealthy or married to someone who is, and I was neither, mm-hmm. uh, so. It was time to move on? It was time to move on. If you're just joining us, my guest today is voiceover artist Debbie Irwin. So you have been able to make these transitions without terribly too much difficulty. Why was it so obvious to you that you had to move on to be doing voice work? Well, did that, is that what happened after? No, 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 no. After the Guggenheim, um, you know, I was
1: working easily 12 hour days, working really hard, and I loved being around the art, but I realized I was not passionate about. PR. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't really care whether I was doing that for the rest of my days or not. So that was when I said, you know what, I want to be in a career where my salary is going to be commensurate with my efforts. I work really hard no matter what it is that I'm doing, and I want to be, you know, to have the rewards be commensurate. So that was when I decided to go to Wall Street and become a stockbroker.
0: Ah, uh, so that came after yes. the Guggenheim. Okay, right. so you went from the Public sector, very much into the private one?
1: Uh, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, obviously, dealing with the public. I had to build a book of business. Um, and, you know, ironically, uh, as I look back over the various things that I have done, being a broker in particular was probably one of the most helpful things that I did in my past to make me be successful in where I am today.
0: In terms of also a confidence? Yes. You have
1: to sell. You have to sell yourself. You have to find clients. You have to, you know, which I remember we had this thing, you know, you had to smile and dial. That was in the days when everybody was, you know, was cold calling. And you had to make 100 dials. And 100 dials meant you were going to reach 10 people. And of those 10 people, one person was going to be interested in you sending them the brochure. And then the real hard work would start of, you know, trying to develop trust. Were you successful? Yes, I was.
0: And yeah. so then what happened? So then. Did, the, did you start to get that wanderlust feeling again? No.
1: Well, no. Then I had a different kind of feeling inside my body. And that was, uh, you know, becoming a baby mama. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I had my first kid in 1990. And um, I like to say I left Wall Street for Sesame Street. In quotes, mm-hmm. I'd never really worked at Sesame Street, but when I decided to become a full time mom. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a major, major shift uh, for me to go from, you know, full on professional woman, sure. you know, to full on mom, mm-hmm. where I was a little bit like a salmon swimming upstream. Um, I was one of the few moms in the park hanging out with the nannies. Mm-hmm. You know, most women then were you know, trying to do the, the dual. Have and, it both ways. And I was fortunate enough to not have to, and
0: I did not want to. Mm-hmm. So um, raised three kids. As I said in the intro, that your creative juices started to bubble again, and that you just said, I think I'm going to go take a voiceover class. It's not that I said, I think I'll take a voiceover class, because I didn't know what voiceover was.
1: And okay. I wish that when I came to New York 36 years ago that I had known what it was. Okay, but
0: you can't go there.
1: So what I did was I got the... Uh, NYU School of Continuing Education booklet, which back when they were printing it was probably a good two inches thick, and also the 92nd Street Y pamphlet of of courses. And to me, it was like walking through a library of ideas or a candy shop of options. And you could just look at all these different classes and careers and and get ideas about, gee, would I like to this? Would I like to that? Would I like this? That? Whatever. So the world
0: could have been your oyster back then.
1: Yes, it, it was. Mm-hmm. It was. And I didn't have to go back to work, and then I thought, well, what's the one thing that that I really love? I thought well, acting, theater. I said, but I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not available nights and weekends. So that was when I started to look for ideas, and I came across this class in the 92nd Street Y brochure for voiceover, and I, I read the description. I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that class. And as I said, within 5 minutes of being in that class, I knew, okay, this is it. I found it. I found it because I get to act and it's building my own career and it's doing things on my time. I don't have to punch a clock. And so I like to tell people that I'm living my dream now. I just didn't that I came to New
0: York for. I just didn't know it was going to look like this. You know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that you can pull it off how wonderful to say, this is what I want to do. And and now there's something that's speaking to me. And now you got to get out there and do it. And it's <laughs> yes. not necessarily so simple, is it? No, it's not. In fact, if I had a nickel for every
1: time somebody says to me, I've been told I have a great voice, I should do voiceovers. So mm-hmm. tell me, you know, how do I how do I get into it? Did you, you know. start by finding an agent? No, that's not how I started. And although I made the mistake of thinking that that was one of the early things I needed to do. A requirement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I tell people, do not make the same mistake that I made, because I actually met with one of the top agencies in New York City way before I was ready to. And I'm sure you've heard the saying, you know, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Mm. So an agent, if you think about it, an agent is not going to be interested in you unless and until you've shown that you can make money. Exactly.
0: So, yes. But you have to get that first job. You know, it's such a
1: vicious cycle. Well, but not through an agent you don't have to get that first job. No. And there are other people, better people for you to be connecting with and developing relationships with, like casting directors, for instance. Uh-huh. And also there are online casting sites. And this was not something that existed, you know, 15 years ago, whatever. Now, you know, when you're ready, I mean, I tell people this all the time, you know, if you look at, at how my career went for the first number of, of years, first couple of years, it was flatline. I mean, I was training. I was learning. I was growing. You're not ready. Post-voiceover class, you mean. Right. Because you're not ready to go out there and to and to sell yourself. What do you know? So Nothing. what was your
0: first paying gig post-class? I'm trying to remember. I have this vague
1: recollection so of it being lie. an online, of it being an online. It was sort of like a, one of these pop-up uh, helpers. Which doesn't really make sense because those virtual those avatar things are kind of more recent. they weren't really around thirteen mm-hmm. you know years ago, but that's that's what comes to mind. I do remember one of my first first experiences in a studio in New York City, and it was for uh John's furniture in Pennsylvania, and it was sort of a sexy read and I remember having an out of body experience in in the booth. It was more than a it was a big big booth and i just remember kind of floating above myself and looking down and being in awe of where i
0: was mm-hmm.
1: and i you know i even feel like i'm going to cry now because it was you know. it was
0: a seminal moment in your life wasn't it
1: yeah it was like you know actually i had an i had that another time too
0: in my career and
1: that was when i saw i went to a a screening of a film that i um was the uh co-narrator of in a character. It was The film was called um, Incessant Visions. It was about the German-Jewish... Uh, a documentary about the German-Jewish uh, architect, uh, Eric Mendelssohn. And a, a really wonderful collage uh, documentary about his story. He was friends with Albert Einstein, and it was really wonderful. Anyway, I played the role of his wife being interviewed, and that was the thread through the entire film... That sort of went to the past and to the present, telling the story of his life from his wife's perspective because he had written like three thousand letters to his wife, and so uh, they from that they you know pulled out the story. Anyway, I just remember being in the movie theater uh, at the Castro in San Francisco uh, with my kids by my sides and crying, mm-hmm. just crying mm-hmm. because. It of the potency of that. The potency. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. so
0: real. It mm-hmm. was so big. And I was so proud and so grateful. Mm-hmm. So there's been, I use the word eclectic. I'm going to use it again in terms of the work that you have done mm-hmm. that you made, there's something like that. And then there's Jennifer convertibles. The versatility in that must be rewarding on another level, too, that you can just wear so many different hats without people seeing you. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Uh, You know, as they say, I have a face for radio. (laughs) Yeah, I've used that many times myself.
0: So you still have to go on auditions, correct, or do people come to you? Well, both.
1: I mean, the way it's changed is I've developed relationships with clients who come to me. Who want Debbie Irwin. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's really really gratifying. You I mean, think? you know, <laughs> you know, in fact There's I, an understatement. My my client with uh, with Oracle in fact, I um we were you know joking before about how the best way to to get business is to tell the world that you're going on vacation, suddenly your phone rings off the hook. So this past April, I was going to Israel. And that day or the day before, my my client from Oracle called me with, you know, six videos that had to get narrated. And there was just, you know, and the scripts weren't ready. Now, sometimes I take my recording gear with me on the road so that I can set up a studio wherever I am. But this was a trip that I decided I was not taking any any gear. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to work. Mm -hmm. So I felt, um, you know, that... That kind of feeling initially, but um, very quickly responded with, "Let me give you some names of my colleagues who I trust." What a great
0: thing! A great thing to do.
1: Terrific women, terrific men. um, You know, any or all of them will be able to handle this. Handle Mm -hmm. this. Do Mm -hmm. you solid. So he was very appreciative. And at one point over the two weeks while I was away, you know, I did send him an email saying, Hey, I just wanna hear is everything go? You know, how did How's it, it going? go? Mm-hmm. And he said Actually, he said, we didn't use any of them. Um, We were able to, uh, I think we're going to, you know, use somebody here. And I said, super great, you know, whatever, wonderful. And then I came home and reached out to him and said, you know, I'm curious to hear, show me, you know, show me the work. I'd like to hear what he said. You know what? I convinced them to wait. But having said that, uh, there's a colleague of mine, uh, Doug Turkell, a fantastic um, voice actor, and he says, um, every day you're losing a client whether you know it or not. Because? Just because. That's the nature of the business. People change. They decide to replace your voice. uh, You know, whatever. It It just happens. The point being that every day you need to be out there finding new clients. So... Yeah, you can't really rest on your laurels. You There's don't no really, complacency. You, you, yeah, you don't know. Um, just because they've called you before doesn't mean somebody else isn't going to, you know, take over and decide they want their person, or you know, I've been replaced by a man. Let's say you still have to
0: hustle. You know what? Honestly. I hope I continue hustling my entire (laughs) life. (laughs) But I mean, there's something to be said, you know, for the history and the street cred that somebody might say, we're calling Debbie Irwin because we want her and we're not going to bother auditioning anybody else. I'm sure that that happens as well as you're still having to go out and audition and convince someone you're right for that job. Yes, yes.
1: And then also, you know, we talk about, you know, sort of,
0: (laughs) I'm thinking of the
1: Uh, a song from uh, Hamilton, rise up, you know, you want to rise up your business also. So you have some people who, you know, either they're not a pleasure to deal with, or the rate that they're paying you is not so good. And so, you know, you, you know, over time, your value increases. And so you ask for more, or you need to find clients who are in a position to pay you what you're worth. And so, you know, maybe you get rid of the lower 10%, and you're out there looking to you know
0: to boost it and find business that's more comparable to where you are, or where you want to be. If you're just joining us, my guest today is voiceover artist Debbie Irwin. What are some of your most satisfying jobs? Hmm, where my clients are
1: happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what about you being happy? Um, yeah. So, well, a couple of ways to answer that. Um, certainly, the museum audio tours. Are uh, are a lot of fun to do. Sadly, they don't pay particularly well. They don't pay well at all. But you know, in life, their payment comes in a lot of different forms. Absolutely, it's not always uh, there's monetary. an ebb and a flow
0: with that stuff. Sure, you know.
1: So the fact that I can say that I've voiced museum tours for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, the Smithsonian. Yale Peabody Museum of Natural Hello. History. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that to me, that's that 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 fills my my heart. Your soul. My soul. Mm-hmm. I also have been doing a lot of work in medical narration. And what I love about that is actually the work that the animators are creating. Because to me, the artwork there, it is it is fine art. So to be involved in those projects. I just feel really, really lucky. You know, it's a fine art of a different kind.
0: And being able to say those medical terms? Yes. Oh, gosh, how challenging is that?
1: Very, sometimes (laughs) very, very. But uh, you've already figured out I like a challenge. So that tongue-twisting terminology is... um, is rewarding. Mm-hmm. What's funny sometimes is where you have a session and it's for, let's say, you know, some uh, pharmaceutical product and there's not agreement even amongst the people who work at the company. How to pronounce <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, right. You're like, I'm okay, right. well, we'll lay this down both ways and you guys can mm-hmm. figure it out mm-hmm. later. There's another kind of work that's that's also gratifying. I don't do a lot of it, but when I do it, it just – and that is um, video game, you know, ah. video game characters. Uh-huh. All voice work is voice acting. Sure. But – in some of these areas like the you know video games, you really have you have a broad broad canvas I mean if i'm doing if I'm doing a narration for uh, you know for a pharmaceutical company for a hospital, you know that that playing field the the um, uh, what do you call it in golf the uh, anyway, it's very narrow <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know the path the sure. path mm-hmm. but uh, for these other uh, you know, for instance, I did a character for uh, for Mafia 3. Um, she was a New Orleans uh, Southern woman from the 50s, and she was racist and disgusting. And, and, you know, I played her character. And then I, you know, I did something else uh, recently while I was in Chicago. And, you know, those are those are really a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of fun.
0: It sounds like a really nice match. You know, there's a very serious and then there's a kind of flighty, you know, fantasy sort of thing. So that reinforces the fact that the woman with the versatile voice, that's the great skill and that you could just put on all these different hats. You can go from a medical narration and sales and marketing to playing a video Mm -hmm. character. I mean, Mm -hmm. you must sometimes look back and, you know, as you go over the course of the day, say, hey, this is really great. I'm really in a great place. It is. It
1: is. You're loath to find a voice actor who doesn't love what they do.
0: I mean, as challenging as it can be and the fact that you sometimes have to dance as fast as you can or that you still have to audition or whatever. I mean, look at you go back over your career from the Statue of Liberty to Barclays to, you know, to the Guggenheim. It's pretty damn expansive. Yes,
1: yes. And I went to your point about auditioning. Ninety percent of the work
0: is auditioning. Yeah, it's a there's it's a lot. It I is bet. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I, don't, I think that people would probably be very naive if they tend to, not to think that it's a walk in the park, but that even, that that still doesn't get any easier, despite how many years you are in the business.
1: Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And also that it is a business, so you're not only the talent, but nowadays you also have to have your own booth, so you have to be the engineer, and you have Oy to be vey. your own director, mm-hmm. and you have to be sales and marketing and
0: IT and accounting. Hello, you're a big one-woman band. You have to do it all. More power to you, because people, I don't know that I could pull that stuff off.
1: It's it's complicated. It really <laughs> it really is, and you have to know what you're good at and what you're not, and you have to figure out, okay, where you can delegate um, in order to be more Efficient. But, you know, I really feel badly for people who are starting out because you don't really know how much and where to invest and at what point you're going to know, is it really what you want? But mm-hmm. you have to invest a little bit in order to, f- to try it, to put your
0: toe in the water. Um, you know, so. So many buttons to push and so many paths to go down. Well, Debbie, we've run out of time. Oh, how did that happen? (laughs) Because you had two women talking. Um, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to listening to you more. And now I can associate the face with the voice. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. And please go to our iTunes store page and leave a rating and a review. And if you know anyone you think that we should interview, contact us at SandyKleinShow.com.